but really gives us a uh, pretty accurate uh, timeline of when Paul was there in Corinth. But uh, says when when Gallio, when he was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul, and they brought him to the judgment seat, saying, "This fellow." persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. When Paul was now about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If this were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. But if it be a question of words and names and of your law, look ye to it, for I will be no judge of such matters. And he drave them from the judgment seat, and all of the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him before the judgment seat, and Gallio cared for none of those things. Kind of a, uh, really an embarrassing episode here for the leader of the synagogue, Sosthenes. Uh, he had gotten sick and tired of Paul uh, and for, for coming and stripping a lot of uh, his attendees to synagogue and uh, and persuading them to... Uh, to follow Jesus Christ, and uh, he, in his in his uh, upset, um, or him being upset about this matter, he he decided, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take this, take Paul, and take him to the uh, Roman courts, and let's just see what they can do about Paul. I haven't been able to to get rid of him yet, so maybe they can get rid of him. And uh, he, he brings Paul to uh, to this judgment seat of Gallio, and uh, it says that uh, this this judgment seat this is this is referring to the courts. Uh, what in Greek would be the word bema, which was this this bench on, on which the, the they would judge these matters. If somebody could come, they could bring a matter to uh, to the uh, preconsul of that area. And they would judge it, and they would they would hand out their their sentence. And uh, here, Sosthenes is bringing Paul, and he's trying to just get rid of him. But what ends up happening is that uh, Gallio he says, "If this was something that I was really worried about, if this was something that pertained to our law, then I might rule in this matter." But this seems like something that you're dealing with. You, you Jews, you guys are dealing with this stuff. You figure this out yourselves. In fact, then he just kind of turns his back as his Roman guards then start beating Sosthenes, the one who had brought Paul to the judgment seat. They beat him. He goes off and uh, he's, in, he's in, just kind of in shame leaving that place. Definitely did not end the way that he expected that to end. He was hoping to get rid of Paul. Instead, he leaves beaten and broken and... Um, and so this is, this is just this, this thing that takes place. We see other instances where religious matters are then brought to a, a secular court. Uh, we see this even in, even in Jesus, uh, when, uh, in the, uh, at the last days of Jesus, when he is being uh, tried before his crucifixion, uh, you see Jesus being brought before different courts. You have the religious court that he's first brought to. He is then transferred from there to a secular court and then bounced back to the religious court. All in the matter of just a night and, and all of this, uh, takes place that, uh, that we see these religious matters that are brought into secular court systems. And, uh, sometimes they would deal with them. Sometimes they wouldn't. Um, but this is just kind of setting this, this, uh, I just want to kind of set this, 
scene for us to understand that there were these court systems that were in place and uh, it was possible what they really what the Greeks or I'm sorry what the uh, Jews were trying to do here was to say they're causing trouble. In fact, anytime that you see Paul ending up in prison, it's because they're saying he's causing trouble here. They bring him to the secular court. They throw him in prison because he was causing some kind of insurrection. Um, It's interesting to note that Sosthenes in the book of 1 Corinthians, we've actually already come across his name uh, in the earlier chapters of 1 Corinthians, and he is mentioned within the account of the believers that are there within the church. Now, whether or not that's the same Sosthenes as this one here, we can't be certain. There may have been other Sosthenes that were uh, that were there any time that, you know, we, we don't really have that full context of who it was. But it seems fairly likely that Sosthenes here being mentioned might have eventually come into the church and become part of the church, even though here he was trying Paul for, uh, you know, trying to get, get him kicked out. But I just, I just want to kind of bring this, this episode to you so that we can understand a little bit of what Paul is going to be dealing with in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's a little different um, because what he's dealing with here or what happened here was a case of the Jews bringing him, a Christian, to the courts. Uh, but we're going to see now in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, beginning here, this matter that's being played out in the court system between two believers, two Christians. And Paul is going to have some words to say to, uh, to, say to the Corinthians about uh, bringing these religious matters to that, uh, to that court system and, uh, and what, you know, how, how these things ought to be handled. So let's, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 1. It says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore, there's utterly a fault among you, because you go to the law one with another, but do ye not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, or adulterers, or effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Okay, I just covered a lot of things there just in those first 11 verses, and we'll go back and um, pick some of that apart. So he starts here, he says, dare any of you. <laughs> so how dare you? 
How dare you guys go against one another, two believers, into the courts to bring a matter that you two are dealing with to those who are unjust. Now, I want to, first of all, say that Paul's concern here is, is really is not about justice. He's not necessarily advocating for the fact that we should not pursue justice. His, his concern, his primary concern here is for taking internal matters that are inside the church, outside the church. What Paul is saying is that mature Christians ought to be able to resolve issues among themselves based on godly principles without having to go to these people who do not have godly principles to adjudicate their matters. He's, he's saying, you know, that's really what his concern is, is that, you know, and also outside of just, just that, but he, he's concerned about what the perception of, of Christ is going to be within the community when they begin to do this. And that, you know, it's, it's somewhat difficult for, for us to think in the, in the terms of the first century sometimes. But here they are, Paul, here Paul is, he's, he's living in this pagan Greco-Roman world where it is not Christian values in which they are living. In that first century church, it's not like us here in the North American church. And we may say, you know, even even today, that uh, our society is not Christian um, as far as, well, it's, it's that, that the North American society is, is certainly straying away from Christian values. But, the, but the, re, the fact is that here in America, we were founded on Judeo-Christian values. And I'm thankful for that. And there's, in, the, in our court systems, they were founded upon Judeo-Christian values. That wasn't the case for Paul. That wasn't the case in that first century world that they as a Christian community were very, very separate in their uh, morals, their ethics, their values. All of that was very different from the Roman worlds. They were, they were absolutely an alter community from, from the community and the society that was, that they were in. So, so Paul, he, what he's concerned here, he, he's saying that if there's this matter between two Christians, you ought to be able to resolve that among the church where the people have the same values. They have the same godly principles. You shouldn't have to take this to ungodly people to resolve a dispute between two of you who are within the church. And he's, and he's concerned about their witness in, in this world that we live in today here in North America. As I said, you know, there's a, a society that even though we may be straying away from Christian values, still the vast majority of people here in the United States would at least identify themselves as Christian. They may not attend church, um, may, but, but in one form or another, the majority, obviously not everybody, but the majority of, of people in the United States uh, would claim some branch or some sort of Christianity and so if you were to go before a court today, the judge is not going to ask you the question. They're not going to um, you know, ask whether or not you are, or you are a Christian. But that is probably, especially here in Noble County, here in the Midwest, 
that, especially here, they're going to assume that you probably have uh, some Christian background to you. And that's, that's just kind of the assumption. For Paul and for these, these believers in Corinth, that wasn't the assumption at all. Like, you get two Christians in there, and the judge, he's thinking, man, here's, here's these two weirdos. Like, these two that, these people that they are like so different from us. They, in fact, they thought of Christians, really, Christians and Jews, um, as being, they, they referred to them as atheists, which is really unique. But the Romans and the Greeks, actually, they, they both, they referred to the Jews and the Christians as atheists because they only believed in one God. They didn't believe in their pantheon of all of these gods. And so if you read through some, some of their Roman literature, some of that stuff, there's, they're often referring to these one God believers as, as atheists because they just deny the fact that all these pagan gods exist. And so here they are. I mean, they, they look at these Christians as being somebody who's like totally outside their community. And, and what, yet Paul is concerned with the fact that we need to evangelize that community. We need to reach them. And if we're bringing some of these issues out, out into public, then, then that is, that's hurting our witness. So if, I guess we can just, just go back to where we started. This, this really, all of this, it doesn't preclude seeking justice. That if you, if you read the Old Testament, one of the major themes of the Old Testament prophets was that they were seeking justice. These prophets, many of them, as they're, as they're um, rebuking the people of Israel, as they're trying to get them back on course, they over and over are talking about how you guys have unjust court systems, how you have evil judges, um, you guys are not looking after the fatherless, you don't care about the widows, uh, you, you can't, you know, stop taking advantage of the orphans, uh, stop taking advantage of, of the people who are just passing through, the strangers, in your midst, uh, all of this, and in these Old Testament prophets, they're rebuking the Israelites over and over as they're trying to course correct them back to uh, back to godly principles. They're they're talking to them about justice and how justice is you know needs to come back. And so so Paul here, he's not he's not just winking at justice and saying that that injustice is permissible or even preferred, but his his concern here is that the church shouldn't be taking these matters into the public view and just when it's something that could be resolved within the church. If it's something that could be resolved within the church, let's stop taking it outside the church. If it's something that could be resolved between two brothers in Christ, or then, then don't bring this out to unjust people. And it's interesting how he, how he phrases that. If you go back to, um, if you go back to how he phrases in verse one, he says, Having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints. He says, you guys are bringing this before the unjust people. You, you as Christians are bringing these issues to people who do not have godly principles. And you are expecting them to rule in a matter that you ought to be able to just use some godly principles. Use the Holy Ghost that you have. 
to find reconciliation with each other. Do, he says, do that. Stop going and bring these matters out there. And he goes from that to then saying in verse two, do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? Okay, that's a unique phrase that we don't, we need to make sure that we understand the context. Paul is concerned with two things primarily in his, in his teachings and his writings. One, he's concerned with the evangelism of, of the world right now and, uh, and also in our, in our spiritual disciplines, how we live, uh, right now. And the second thing that Paul often writes about are things of the end times. And that's what Paul is referring to here. He, he goes from this idea of, of how we are living right now to then saying, in the end, and I don't, I still don't have a full grasp of what all this means for us to judge the world. But he says, don't you know that the saints of God are going to judge the world? That you are going to one day sit on these, sit on God's counsel and his jury, and you are going to be responsible for judging the world. Don't you know that you have everything that you need right now to be able to judge right and wrong? This is one of these days, that's where you're going to be. In fact, not only are you going to be judging the world, but you're going to be judging the angels. He says, if you have that responsibility that's coming to you in the future, then right now, let's figure out how we can find some peace between each other. If that, if this is something that's awaiting you down the road where you're going to judge the world and you're going to judge the angels uh, for what they did right and what they did wrong, then we better be able to figure out how to judge things within the church. And then he kind of gets right to uh, this whole matter of, of what he had dealt with earlier in the letter where, where he was uh, talking to them about them being so wise that for themselves, they saw themselves as being uh, very high in wisdom that, in fact, their wisdom was, uh, was so high that, uh, that Paul, he was very simplistic and they didn't necessarily need to follow Paul anymore because they were so wise. And Paul gets right down to, he says, if you guys are so, so wise, this is where he says, I speak to your shame. Verse five, speak to your shame. If, if there was not a wise man among you, is it so that there's not a wise man among you? So he says it. Wait a minute. You guys are so wise. If there's nobody wise enough to just judge in these matters, then really, how wise are you? I mean, if you guys can't even figure out these disputes between each other, then how how wise are you? You're talking about and puffing yourselves up about how wise you are. But he says, no, not one of you are able to judge between his brethren. But instead, you go to the law, and you bring this to the unbelievers. You bring this stuff to them. Now, therefore, there is this, uh, there's utterly a fault among you because you go to the law. So why do you not rather take the wrong? And this, this is kind of hard to swallow. But he then addresses the person who took his brother to the, to the laws to sue him, and he says, "Why don't you just why don't you just take the wrong?" 
Why don't you rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? How about if you're not willing to judge each other, if you're not willing to figure this out with one another, then walk away from it. Be willing to be wrong. Be willing to be defrauded. Be willing to take the loss. That would be better than taking this matter to the courts. And that's kind of hard to swallow here to say, well, wait, 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 I have rights. I have, I have rights. I, I shouldn't have to take the loss. I shouldn't have to be defrauded. And this is where I, w- I want to get to, I mean, I want to go back to the fact that Paul, he is not saying that we should not seek justice. We see plenty of other occasions where Paul is, um, he uplifts the court system and he, he, he seeks justice in other matters. But what Paul is saying is, it's better for you to take the loss here, better for you to take the wrong and to suffer yourself as defrauded than to go about it in this manner. In the manner where you are suing one another, you're bringing these matters to the courts. He says, no, nay, you do wrong. You defraud and that your brethren. He says, there, both of you are wrong. The one who defrauded is wrong and the one who is trying to bring this to the court system is wrong. Both of you are wrong in this matter. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on, and we could dive into that. I'm not necessarily going to dive deep into these next couple of verses. But here's, here's, here's the deal with, with Paul, that as he, is, as he is teaching all of this, you know, we, we ourselves can a lot of times, you know, feel as if getting justice is the, is the, the highest form of um, or is, is the best thing that needs to happen. And it doesn't matter who it is that did us wrong. We need to get, we need to get justice in the matter. Paul says, really, reconciliation is the best thing. It's not about justice. There are times where things are not going to be fair. There's times where you're going to feel as if it was wrong, where you were wronged, and you're going to have to forgive them. There's, now he says it's wrong what they did. You do wrong. The one who defrauded is wrong. But also, we don't need to always carry things through to the end to make sure that we get justice in every single situation. And so, he's dealing with these, these, uh, this issue that, that they are bringing things up and they're bringing things into the outer court. And now here's, here's something that I, I do want to say that I think the church, um, the church today, not just today, but over the last, well, I could probably go back real far, but where the church can take this particular thing out of, um, out of context or get this completely wrong. And they will hide things that are very wrong within the church and not deal with them. But instead, they just shove them under the, under the sheet, shove them under, um, you know, make sure that nobody knows about it. There is abuse that has happened within the church. I'm just talking, not this church here, but there's, there's abuse that's happened within the, the church. You look at uh, all of the lawsuits, everything's happened within the Catholic church, and you can go far behind, far beyond that. There's, there's many churches that you've seen abuse happen, and instead of, of taking these 
matters that ought to be adjudicated, these things that ought to be brought out so that justice can take place. Um, Instead, they choose to just keep that within the church, and they choose to try to handle this within the church instead of bring this to the law. And I don't believe that's what Paul is referring to here. Paul is not saying that if somebody has done something uh, that so, so bad as uh, as taking advantage of a young child, that just take care of that within within the church. You know, you guys don't don't bring this to the law. And there's there's uh, a lot of um, hurt that has been done, and the reputation of of the church has been tarnished because because of that, because they have swept things under the rug or they have hid, hidden things and not brought them out and seen. Uh, the person, the, the person who did this to actually see and have to face the justice system for their actions. And, and that is not good, but that is not, that's not what Paul is, is referring to here. He's, he says, these are, these are little things. These are little things that you guys are bringing out into the courts. These are little things that you guys can't de- resolve within yourselves. He says, well, if it's just these little things that you have, stop fighting to the, to the bitter end and trying to get justice for yourself. No, let's, let's figure out through godly principles, through people who have the Holy Ghost, through people who, who are within the church, let's try to resolve these matters in that manner rather than bringing these out to everybody else so that it can be seen, you know, all this division within the church. Um, so this is... I, I want to make sure just to address that, that this is, this is not Paul saying, hide everything under the rug. Just figure everything out. Nobody ever has to, has to face the consequences for, for their awful decisions or different things that they've done. And that's not what Paul is saying here. Um, but if we, if we continue on, let's, let's go to, uh, verse 12. Let's go to verse 12. He says, now, well, I guess before I, before I read this, if you remember, what we covered several weeks ago, the last time um, that I was teaching on a Wednesday night, we were covering chapter 5, uh, and what Paul was addressing in chapter 5 was this really messed up situation that was going on in Corinth with the case of incest uh, that was taking place between a man and his father's wife. And Paul here, he's chastising them, he's chastising the church because he had already talked to them about sexual immorality. And what he wrote to them in chapter 5 was really mostly about their tolerance uh, or even possibly their, their celebration of this sin uh, that was among them. And, and they weren't doing anything about it. He, was, uh, he, he didn't really have too much to say directly to this man and woman who were doing this. But rather, uh, he was mostly talking to the church as a whole about like, you guys don't care about this. This is going on. You're tolerating it. You're allowing them to be there. And he's chastising the church for that. And so he goes from that situation uh, to then going to these two men who are having this disagreement and um, taking this to the courts. And now, uh, guess what? He goes back to the issue of sexual immorality. So you can see really how often Paul addresses this issue of sexual immorality in his letters to the Corinthians and, and really in, in several of his other letters that he writes to even to other churches, just how prominent of an issue this was for the first century church to struggle with sexual immorality, which 
which makes sense, especially for the Corinthians, because here you have a bunch of Gentiles. Not the church wasn't fully Gentile. There were many Jews that were part of the church, but but you have many Gentiles who they're coming out of this life of sexual promiscuity, where that was like how they worshipped their gods. They would go to the Temple of Venus, and there were temple prostitutes who were there, and that's how they worshipped. And now. They've come into the church and they still have this background of sexual immorality that they're dealing with. And so uh, there's a lot of times that wasn't just the culture of Corinth. That was the culture within um, within Rome of that day. But especially in Corinth, uh, that was that was an issue that they faced. So, uh, OK, let's go to verse verse 12. It says, all things are lawful unto me. But all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Meats for the belly, the belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord, and he will also raise up us by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. All right, if I was preaching tonight, I would just skip down to verse 19 and 20. I may have even uh, stopped there up at verses 9 through 11, and preached on those two things. But I want to uh, get the context of everything that he's saying here. Uh, we hear those, uh, those passages, uh, those particular verses, often. Um, but what is, what is Paul addressing here uh, as he gets into verse 12 through, through 20? There's two words that you saw uh, come up a couple of times there in that passage. And the one... He has this Greek word, porneia, which uh, means sexual immorality. The other word is the Greek word for body. We see it, body. The Greek word, it's, it's soma. And so these two words, uh, porneia, sexual immorality, and the body, soma, uh, these two things kept coming up. And so there's something about the body that, uh, that Paul is, is really trying to correct them, to bring some correction about their understanding of their body and how they lived for God. So there was this belief that they had, and I want you to catch this, because this is key actually to a lot of the issues that the Corinthians dealt with. They have this faulty theology of their body. They believed, they had this, this belief, and it was something that um, originated in the Greek culture. 
this, this belief of dualism, dualism. And this belief is, uh, this belief of dualism or this theology of dualism is that uh, it teaches that it, it really doesn't matter what happens to the body. That it's really about the spiritual essence of a person and how they connect with God. But the body, it really doesn't matter because the body uh, within the Christian context, when they would bring this into their own faulty theology, they said, uh, one day we're going to go to heaven. Our body is going to pass away. Um, our body doesn't really matter. God doesn't care about our body. And so we don't really need to worry about even what we do here on earth because our body is inconsequential. We can do whatever we want with our body. And really, you'd be surprised by how many Christians hold this view even today that they don't believe that our body really matters to God at all. But that's not true. If we, I mean, you can just, just look at Calvary and what Jesus accomplished at Calvary is, was this understanding that the body mattered for salvation. That for Jesus, his body had to die. His body had to be crucified. That he had to physically go through the torturous death on the cross in order for salvation to happen. And so there was a connection to the body and what happened spiritually even there on the cross. And what he did on the cross was not just save our souls, but he reconciled our bodies back to Christ. Our corrupted bodies could be now redeemed and brought back into relationship with Christ. If you go, uh, of course, when you, when you look forward to the resurrection, when you go look forward to the rapture of the church or, you know, whenever we are in heaven, um, it, scripture speaks of how we will have a glorified body. And, you know, we can make some guesses as to what all that means. I, I really don't know exactly what it means to have a glorified body. Uh, we know that Jesus had a glorified body post-resurrection for himself. It says that uh, he had been glorified and, you know, in, in his glorified state, he still sat down and he had dinner or he had meals with his disciples. And so um, seemed to have a lot of the same uh, same things that he was able to do. So I don't, I don't know fully what it means to have a, a glorified body. But what I do know is that is that our body is is still present, even post-resurrection. Now, we're not going to have pain. We're not going to have sorrow. We're not going to have, um, you know, the, all the sickness. You're not going to have all of that. But, but you, you will still have a body, and your body still matters. And, and especially today, we cannot disconnect our body and what we do with our body from what we do spiritually. And a lot of times, we try to... Christians try to um, put these partitions in our spiritual life or put partitions within our life to where you have things that you can do and God's going to wink at them or God doesn't care about them. And you have other areas where it's, uh, you know, we need to make sure that we are righteous and all of that and everything that we do. But, but the reality is we, we can't partition our life off into these different areas. That our body, everything that we do with our body affects everything that we do with our spirit. And I don't think this is necessarily revelatory to us, but this is revelatory to understand the Corinthians, 
how they believed in dualism, where they said it doesn't matter what you do with your body here on earth, because none of that really affects the fact that your spirit has been saved and your spirit is connected with God. Because your spirit, they say, was the only thing that was going to be saved. And so anything that you did with your body didn't matter. So this is where he begins their faulty theology. If I can just pick up, pick back up on verse 12. He says, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. Or expedient means uh, beneficial. Not everything is beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now that phrase... All things are lawful unto me. Uh, Really seems to be one of these situations where it appears that that Paul is likely quoting the Corinthians in something that they had written to him or something that they had said to him. We know, you can can tell as you read through the book, that, um, that Paul, this is not the first time that Paul has had some uh, discourse with the Corinthians, that they've written some letters to him, he's written some letters back to them. And uh, even throughout this book, he's answering some of their direct questions that they have. And, and this particular phrase seems to be uh, one of these places where they made a statement in one of their letters to him, or maybe even when he was there with them in Corinth. But uh, this whole thing of all things are lawful to me. So he says it twice in this verse, and then um, again in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians uh, he says that same thing. He says, all things are lawful unto me, uh, but all things are not expedient. So, they're saying, when they're saying all things are lawful for us, they're saying that we can do whatever we want to do. That we've been freed in Jesus Christ. That, and now that we've been freed in Jesus Christ, we can do whatever we want. We have theology, or we have, uh, we have, uh, liberty in Christ Jesus to do whatever we want. Now, one option of what Paul might be might be saying here is is or of what they may how they may have picked this up in their belief is that maybe Paul in one of his letters back to them had, you know, in in trying to um, teach them told them, you, know, you guys are free in Christ Jesus. You don't have to observe the holy days. You don't, you don't have to observe the Jewish dietary laws and the Jewish Sabbaths and, you know, those sorts of things because you're free in Christ. And it could be that they've twisted that understanding that they've been free in Christ and said, Oh, we've been free in Christ. Now everything is lawful for us. We can do whatever we want. And so it seems that uh, Paul, he's quoting this statement back to them, but then Paul adds this qualifying uh, statement to to render all that as ineffective. He says, no, not everything is lawful for you. Or actually he says, yes, okay, everything is lawful for you. You can do it, but not everything's beneficial for you. And that's really the marker that you should be setting. What is beneficial for us? You say everything's lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of anything. Okay, that's the second time that he says it in that verse. I, everything's lawful, but I'm not going to be brought under the power of any. Now you notice, he's saying this, this twice here. Everything's lawful for me, but it's not expedient. It's not beneficial. Everything's lawful for me, but I am not going to be brought under the power 
of any. And what does that mean? I'm not going to be brought under the power of any. Well, evidently they, they believe that it's okay for them to go and visit harlots. See that there in the next couple of verses. And for them, believing this faulty theology of dualism, that their body doesn't matter, you know, what they do with their body doesn't matter, and their salvation is not once they, once they had been saved, no, we could go to a once saved, always saved theology and see right here the faultiness of that as Paul is addressing, saying, okay, you've been saved, now it doesn't matter what you do, you're always going to be saved, it doesn't matter what you do with your body, Paul is addressing that very thing right here. Now, it's not that same exact, they wouldn't have that terminology, but that, in effect, is how some, some Christians live today, that if you've been saved, now it doesn't matter what I do. I can do whatever I want, I'm going to go to heaven. I can do whatever I want. Uh, I, I heard it said to me, um, somebody sitting, actually, in, in my office uh, a couple of months ago was, was talking to me about uh, a pastor that they had previously sat under, um, not an apostolic, but a pastor who was explaining salvation to them. And they said, once you've been saved, it doesn't matter what you do. Uh, but there's going to be, you know, but, but I, you should do good because you're either going to be in the game once you, get to, once you get to heaven or you're going to be sitting on the bench. And do you want to be in the game? Do you want to be up there doing stuff? Or do you want to be sitting on the bench when you're in heaven? I, I have no idea where this kind of theology is coming from. But... Um, but what Paul is saying here is, hey, what you do matters. You've been saved, but now how you live still matters. So here they are. They believe we can go, we can visit the harlots, and it doesn't matter a lick. Because our body doesn't matter. God doesn't care what we do with our body. So let's look at that phrase, I'm not going to be brought under the power of any. Uh, I think there's a few ways, two ways really I can see how we can understand this. That people, they can have this self-deception of, of spiritual superiority. Where they can be deceived into thinking that they have this liberty to do certain things and then they can, you know, then they then become bound by those certain things. That they think, I'm superior, I've, you know, I've, I'm a good Christian, and I, I can go and I can do uh, things that maybe somebody else, they can't do. So their argument becomes, you know, I have liberty to do these things, and then they, become, they end up becoming bound by those things that they seemingly feel that they have liberty to go and do it. So here, Paul, it's like, it's like as if Paul is saying, okay, you guys have this belief that you are free in Jesus Christ to go and do whatever you want. All things are lawful for you. And so you are operating under this liberty to say that we can do whatever we want, but the reality is you're bound by those things that you think that you have liberty to go and do. You're calling it liberty, but the reality is you're bound. You're calling this liberty, but the reality is that these are things that you've been bound with before in your present life, and you are still operating in them and calling it liberty when the truth is you can't get, you can't get free from this stuff. And so stop calling this liberty when the reality is you're being brought under the power of this sexual immorality. That you can't shake 
this sexual immorality that's there. And you've, so, so you've excused this as saying, it's okay for me to do. But he says, no, we shouldn't be brought under the power of any of this. You shouldn't, you shouldn't have addictions that have authority over your life. You have been set free in Jesus Christ. That means that you don't have liberty to go and do it. But no, you no longer have to do it. That's what Paul is saying here. That you don't have to be brought under the power of any of these things. But the reality is you are being brought under the power of it by saying that you have the liberty to go and do it. So you say that you have the the liberty, uh, that all things are lawful. But, you know, really, what has authority over your life? What habits can you not break? What is it in your life that you cannot stop doing? If there is something, then it has power over you. And then there's this other, maybe seemingly a little bit, a little bit different understanding of what Paul is saying here. Um, that you can understand through the, the remainder of, of that, uh, that passage there and then also once you get into chapter 7 where Paul is talking about uh, marriage and how uh, the spouse um, or two the husband and the wife how when you become married that your body does not belong to yourself that the husband's body belongs to the wife and the wife's body belongs to the husband this is this is what Paul is he's going to be teaching on this and uh, in the next chapter here, but uh, he's he's saying, uh, you know, that your body really is not the authority of yourself. That once you are are come into a, a sexual relationship with your spouse, that has brought, made the two of you into one, and you no longer have complete authority over yourself, and they. And, and your spouse doesn't have complete authority over themselves, but but now the two of you have come together, and you are over each other's body. And so here, when you bring this issue up of the harlot and them saying, well, we can just go and sleep sleep with whatever harlot we want, he goes through, and in fact, if I, if I could just keep reading here, um, I'll skip down to, we already read it, but in verse 15, it says, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ... And make them the members of a harlot? Well, God forbid. Just, you and your body is supposed to come under the authority of your spouse. But now you're bringing it under the authority of a harlot. And you, in fact, are even bringing, verse 16, What? Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. Now once you sleep with this prostitute, this harlot... Now, you're under the authority of that person. You've allowed your body to go under the authority of that individual. And so, you're, you've messed up this whole authority thing and this whole idea of, of your body. And, and uh, we, need to, we need to rein this back in. We need to figure out where, where does the authority really rest. And the authority needs to rest in Christ Jesus, who he set you free so that you can have liberty, but that you don't have to be bound by the sexual immorality that you dealt with in your past. All right, back to verse 13. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats. It's a weird little phrase there. But uh, that, was a, that was a common refrain that they would say. 
uh, meats for the belly, belly for the meats. Basically, uh, what they're saying is uh, that whatever I eat, whatever I do with my body, it only affects my body. My meats for the belly, belly for the meats, that, uh, that my body, uh, it doesn't matter, you know, what I do. It doesn't matter um, what my... Uh, what my desires are, it doesn't matter what my, uh, you know, the things that I, that I, that I want in my life, um, all of that is only going to affect my body, it's never going to affect my relationship with God. That my appetites only affect my body and not my relationship with God. And so they've stretched that little phrase, meats for the belly, belly for the meats, to think that whatever I do with my body is only affecting me to then go to this other arena of sexual immorality to say, whatever I do with my body, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about my relationship with God. It says, now the body is not for fornication, but it's for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. You guys are saying that whatever you do, the meat for the belly, belly for the meat, this thing, uh, it says God is going to destroy both it and them. That's Continuing on with what they believe about the body, that one day your body's going to be destroyed, that, uh, that it doesn't matter, your body doesn't matter. But he says, yes, it does matter. It does matter how you live your life that in, in what you do with your body. And so this just goes right back to that theological problem with uh, what they had and their belief of their body and how um, they said, my body is just for the pleasures of this world. And it's somehow disconnected from my relationship with God. All right, well, I need to wrap this up here. But this, uh, this, this. Uh, we, first of all, we need to understand that what Paul is saying here is he is uh, he's not affirming their beliefs, but rather he is coming against it and saying, "No, we need to uh, flee fornication. That every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body." You are sinning against your body. You, by doing these things, there, it is sin for you to do it. All right, let's, um, let's go, uh, as we finish out, let's go to chapter 10. And I'm just going to pick up that one other uh, passage in which Paul makes that same statement about, um, about all things being lawful to you. Verse 23, chapter 10, verse 23. It says, all things are lawful for me. But all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. So he is uh, he's addressing a different issue with it here, uh, with that same phrase that they would use in this uh, understanding of everything being lawful. But notice verse 24, he says, Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. So... This brings a little fuller understanding even to what he's saying in chapter 6 when he says, uh, all things are lawful, but not everything's expedient. And then he begins talking about the members of the body. Not just your body, but the members of the body of Christ. That even today, you may have things that are lawful for you to do, but if it's not beneficial for the body of Christ, and don't do it. And he's going to talk about Christian liberty later on. We'll get to that uh, in the next couple of weeks where he talks about Christian liberty and uh, how things, some things we may be able to do them, but don't do them if it's going to hurt somebody else that's in the body of Christ. But here, 
uh, we, we get this understanding of, of the fact that all of us as the body of Christ, all of us make up one body. Paul has already addressed uh, or kind of uh, played this out earlier in the letter of how when he was talking about unity within the church, saying all of us together make up the church, not one individual. The church is not about, it's not individualistic. The church is not about you as an individual. What God set out for the church was not about you and what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. If you live your whole life based on this, on the left-hand column, your, are the things that you're able to do, and on the right hand are the things that you're not able to do. And if, as I live my life, I live it by these rules of saying, I can do this, I can't do this, I can do this, I can't do this. Uh, okay, as long as I stay within those, those guidelines, then I'm okay. No, it's about doing what's best for the body. Not just me, but doing what's best for the entire body of the church. And that means time, there are times like last time in chapter 5 where you kick out the man who is living this life of, of immorality and he's uh, in this incestuous relationship. You kick him out of the body. Why? Because that's more beneficial for the body as the church. If he is not going to repent of it, then kick him out because that's what's best for the body. If you guys, as as uh, the, the two of you are fighting amongst each other, uh, let's bring this into the body because it's going to hurt the body by bringing this outside the church. If you are, are thinking that it doesn't matter what you do with yourselves and how you live your life and your body, we need to figure this out. The fact that you are hurting each other, you are hurting the body of Christ by going and not caring for one another and caring for even your own relationships with you and your spouse. You're not putting priority over that. Amen. Let's uh, finish it out there with verses 19 and 20. We read it already, but it says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. And this gets right to that again. Your body matters. Your body. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. God cares about what you do in this body. God cares about how you about the things that you do, about the about the th- the thoughts that you have and the actions that you do. God cares about the way that you dress. God cares about the way that you act. God cares about the things that you drink. God cares about the thing, the, the way that you take care of your body, because your body was bought and paid for, and is meant to be redeemed, or and was redeemed by Him at the cross. Your body has been bought. You your body, and your spirit are God's. So it matters. It matters how you live your life. Amen. I hope this is beneficial for you as we continue on just working our way through Corinthians. It's, uh, it's sometimes that we can, we can uh, have Bible studies where we are addressing certain topics and we stay on a certain topic for a time. But, but I think it's so beneficial just to go through a book like this and to find that this is 
These are things that they were dealing with then, and these are things that we're still, still dealing with right now. Dealing with them right now. And so hopefully we can put some more context uh, to these letters that can help you uh, at a later time as you, uh, as you might run into some of these issues. Maybe here tonight, this isn't something you're dealing with, but uh, you, you may know somebody, you probably know somebody in your life who they have some of these, um, this faulty understanding themselves in how they live their life for God. Amen. I'm thankful for the word. I'm thankful that uh, it's been established and we have for us as a, as a guiding, uh, po- or guiding post for us to always know what truth is. And let's stand.